from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to another edition of HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing current events impacting the business and political communities. I'm your host today, Brian DeAngelis, a partner at Hamilton Place Strategies. Um, Today we have another episode in our new series with conversations with folks working in the cryptocurrency space. Um, We have a really interesting guest, Will McDonough of of Valkyrie Investments, who's been doing a lot of work in blockchain and cryptocurrency for the past several years. My regular co-host, Elliot Owensby, uh, was given the day off, and I've brought in a couple of my Massachusetts buddies here my fellow partner, Matt McDonald, uh, as well as Brendan Walsh, who you all know from our macrocast of market policy partners. Brendan, you introduced us to Will a couple weeks ago, and um, I know I'll be made fun of for this, but you, you had me convinced when you told me he was a, a Boston College grad and had a <laughs> Patriots history, so it was a no-brainer to have him on the show. But I, I started digging more into the work he's been doing and, and the work Valkyrie's doing, and it's, it's a really interesting perspective as, as we sit here in Washington and debate a lot of what's happening in Congress and with the SEC on cryptocurrency. I think this will be a different perspective for our listeners and a, a really great discussion. So um, why don't I bring you in here to, to introduce Will and, and kick things off with us? Yeah, we want to welcome Will. Um, he's had a very, very diverse career from, you know, Radio to sports to uh, working at a pretty large uh, asset manager uh, for years, and uh, most recently, uh, very deep into the the crypto space. Uh, your current venture is Valkyrie, um, which offers a huge amount of uh, fairly diverse uh, crypto assets. What are you, I think you're up to 1.3 billion now. Uh, but what I really kind of want to maybe kick it off with is the, the the ETF future product that you guys just launched. Um, there's only two of them. And I'm sure you have some interesting stories of how that got approved. Uh, but maybe just kick it off and explain to us, um, you know, exactly what what is this product? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, always good to connect with some Massachusetts people. I, I don't get to do it as often as I once did. So it makes me feel like home. So we at Valkyrie, uh, over the course of the past year, have been lucky to get three ETFs approved, all with exclusive uh, exposure to digital assets We uh, in cryptocurrencies. Uh, as you mentioned, we have one. We got Nasdaq's first ETF approved with Bitcoin, um, built exclusively with Bitcoin futures. Um, NYSC has one that they launched uh, that's been quite successful as well. And, and that's a hundred percent Bitcoin. There's no other correct. Okay. So our product's called BTF, um, uh, and it's just pure Bitcoin. It, it's built using. Futures. The way that I've explained the kind of regulatory side of that, and I think what ultimately got us through the the tight uh, crack of the door, was for a long time the SEC was turning down anything with Bitcoin exposure. Um, but what ended up, I think, breaking through is the BTF and the existing Bitcoin futures ETFs that are in the market are constructed all with already approved SEC products. So it's like uh, the joke I make is it's like going into uh, a whole food salad bar and going to the bar, the, the front with your, your salad and then saying, no, no, we can't sell that to you. He said, what do you mean? I just made this with all products from your shelves. It's just my basket of 
those things that you already said were okay. So what's different about this? And the reality of that is, is we just took already approved, you know, CME, CBOE futures that gave great price action on Bitcoin and built an ETF exclusively with it. It's our job to actively manage that and do the rolls month to month. Uh, and we're doing quite well with that. I think our slippage, if you will, um, is about a point or a point and a half off to true pure Bitcoin, which as someone who's been investing in Bitcoin for over five years, you know, being able to pay somebody 150 basis points to worry about it is, yeah. is, a, is a good value. Um, we also have two other products that are uh, proved in trading, uh, one of which is uh, Bitcoin miners. So it's all public companies that uh, are mining Bitcoin. So you can get an interesting exposure through that. And then we have another one that's Bitcoin on balance sheet, VBB. And that's a product that invests in the companies carrying Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Tesla's in there, uh, of course, Mark, um, uh, all, all of the, the ones that you know. But yep, you Square, know, exactly PayPal. Yep. Yeah, they're doing and, and there's more and more of them, which is only further validation uh, of the asset class. So we're quite proud of those three ETFs. Uh, we also have series trusts that give pure exposure to, to protocols. So, you know, Ethereum, layer ones, layer twos, as they call them. And then we have a hedge fund that exclusively invests in DeFi more actively um, and, and exploits the kind of yields offered in those DeFi protocols and liquidity pools, which are spectacular. As a quick data point on that, our uh, last month in that hedge fund, uh, we have a stable coin pair portfolio, meaning stablecoin A and stablecoin B locked into a liquidity pool, paying us uh, an average across all of our pools of 42%. So massive yield, and that's per annum, but 42%, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, massive yield for taking, in essence, no market risk. So we're totally exploiting and participating in that market. And then we're also allocating you know, to DeFi protocols more specifically and directly, uh, which is more of a venture-like return opportunity um, than just pure Bitcoin exposure, which, you know, is more than 50% of my allocation to the space. So I uh, I think, you know, they both have an important role in the in the pie chart. Well, tell us some more about that uh, SEC process. As I said in the intro, you know, we're, we're following this pretty closely. I think DC in general has been kind of obsessed with, since Gary Gensler has come into town. How... It was a good analogy, but but how maybe painful was that process? How much education did you guys have to do with the SEC to kind of get them to open that door a little bit? Yeah, and how long did it take? When did you guys start this whole process? You know, it's it's like uh, it's like anything else. There's a lot of a lot of wait and hurry up and wait and hurry up and wait. And and the way the process with the SEC and many regulatory bodies uh, work is they stipulate a uh, defined amount of time that they have to react to you and to respond to you. And um, I don't believe they've ever responded sooner than the last day of that window um, is just precedent and is what it is. But what was interesting through that process is we were actually first in the queue, uh, if you will, to be approved and um, ProShares, which is a lot bigger company than we, uh, was also in that queue slightly behind us. We were asked to make alterations to our docs in one of the comment periods, which added a five-day window to our uh, kind of cadence. 
Uh, at which point, uh, ProShares, who pays a lot of fees to a lot of people, jumped us in line. Back in there. Yeah. Uh, five days later, they shocking, came back and asked us to <laughs> take out the language that they had pre- five days previous asked us to put in, which we happily did, and then we got approved. Uh, so that was a, a fun uh, couple of weeks. But neither here nor there, we, we were approved within five days of ProShares as a, you know, at the time, a startup, uh, something that, you know, we'll always be proud of. I told people, you know, the day it happened, I told our entire team of 30 people, this is something you will reference in your resume for the rest of your life. And it's a tremendous thing to be proud of uh, and to be associated with. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're really rallying behind that. And as you referenced, you know, up to 1.3 billion across products as of last week, um, when it, this is a business that didn't exist 12 months ago. So uh, we're very proud of that and we'll continue to scale it. What about in terms of trading the, the, ETF. Is there an arbitrage between the futures and the, the, the just Bitcoin? So what that's the that's the key word. And I'm glad you brought that up. And, and it's going to I'll go into a different rabbit hole because of it. But um, to answer that specific question, yes, the only reason for that Which is, is normal for any futures product. I mean, yeah, they don't trade on top of each other. Yeah. I'll, I'll reference it as slippage. But really what it is, is you buy contracts by month. And yep. so we'll buy, like right now, we might own a bunch of February futures contracts. At the end of this month, we need to roll those into March futures contracts. And the, the trading fees of doing that and the time lapse of being able to be long the February and then long the March does create some slippage. Um, and, and on average, that's about 100 basis points, 1%. Uh, you should assume it kind of is the cost of doing business for us to be able to perform that on your behalf. Yeah, and that's pretty normal. Even if you're just buying a, you know, an equities future, um, just for the listeners, trading. I think futures is one of the the most complicated financial products that we trade. You have to know a lot of fairly advanced math, and you get into Greek numerals like gamma and alpha, and I mean like gamma and theta. Uh, but but as as a product gets closer to that that date. You, you can have some goofy things uh, happen uh, when it expires. Yeah. And we saw that in oil, uh, I believe, yeah, I remember. last year, maybe 18 months ago. That was exclusively created by, um, you know, those futures rolling off. And, yep. and there, there are huge markets of people that trade futures but can't hold physical. Physical, yeah. And so in the, oils mar- in the oil markets and the gold markets, you'll have people that are sitting there as the, the term is holding the bag at the end of the month, like, Hey, where do I send the oil? And then, huh? You know, I'm sitting on a desk in, in, in Southern Manhattan. What are you talking about? Um, and so that creates, you know, definitely some interesting opportunities for those that actually could be put the physical. Um, yeah, you would, you, you, you had an opportunity to get paid. Oil went negative. So if you want it, if you have the ability to store it, uh, you, you, you could have made $50 a barrel to just literally take it. <laughs> uh, there's an interesting overlap here. I was in my personal account <clears throat> invested in a triple short oil ETF <laughs> that month that decided to close down before the end of the month <laughs> as, as come to find out was their right. And they sent me my money back before making oh, thank God. Yeah. massive amounts of money. They, uh, you know, we're able to be a little bit sly about that. Uh, but 
you know, that's why you got to read the prospectus, I guess. I didn't, I didn't uh, jump into that. Can I, can I, can I, uh, can I torture an analogy to like move to on this is that the, the dual nature of like uh, futures with like the contract versus the physical, there's a piece of cryptocurrencies that shares that where it is both a currency, but then the protocol programming side of it is a whole, it's a whole nother piece that I feel like at least from a DC perspective, because all the regulators are kind of focused on it as uh, either an asset or a security or what have you that it, and I feel like the the crypto universe has tried with like web three to start introducing the concepts of what the protocols can be or can do in the conversation. But I still feel like the regulatory side of this is, is a little behind on what it really is and that they're still thinking about it as a currency. How, Will, how do you describe that like duality, that nature of those, those two aspects of the technology? You know, when I used to work in sports, we would say, if you hurt your elbow and you go to a therapist, they rub it, you go to a surgeon, they cut it. <laughs> when you go to a regulator, if they're a commodity regulator, guess what? They think it's a commodity. Right. Others think it's a currency. Others think it's a security. Usually that is directly correlated with whatever uh, regulatory body they sit with it. Uh, I had a call just before this with um, a, lo- a lawyer I really respect and trust in D.C. area, uh, an ex-SEC person. And we were talking about how NFTs are to be classified to your exact point, which is dead on. Uh, are we trading a security? Well, here are the attributes that make it a security. Are we trading a commodity? Or are we actually trading something that is viewed as a store of value and thus are we money transmitters? There's a scenario where all three of those things are correct. Uh, And so which regulatory regime do you subject yourself to? And prior to Gensler, I believe there was way more tug of war between the CFTC, the SEC, and there's kind of been some lines in the sands now that are making it a little bit more clear who's responsible for what. Um, But you know, if you are operating with a commodity, you have to register yourself as a commodity pool operator, different than as a security, as an investment management company, right? Now, if, I'm, if my underlying assets are commodities versus currencies, all of that kind of trickles through layers of regulation that really, as we used to call it at Goldman Sachs, I'll get slapped for saying this, the anti-business unit. You know, sometimes it's just the anti-business unit. It's like, that makes too much commercial sense. We need to stop it. Um, and we weren't talking about the regulator. We were actually talking about our compliance people <laughs> internal uh, when we would say that. But there is a lot of tug of war that will persist between is this a commodity? Is this a currency? Is this security? Whose turf is this? And, um, and actually, some of the attributes of some of these assets check multiple boxes. And that's a whole nother layer. How do you think about that from a from the investor perspective as you're looking at the broad space because obviously you're doing a lot in the bitcoin space but the protocol space is like yeah i'm way more active in the protocol space actually i'm 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 a bitcoin supporter and and an investor in it um and believe in it long term i tell people i don't want to give price predictions for 12 days from now but i'm happy to give it to you 12 months from now um and so that's just bitcoin is what it is bitcoin is has a, a bunch of these attributes bitcoin is a store of value for sure Bitcoin is used as a currency for sure. The method that you, if you're buying and selling it for, because you believe in its value, are you 
you're not trading a currency per se. And there's a delineation also within the kind of ecosystem of blockchain where there are there's a differentiation between a cryptocurrency and a digital asset. A crypto that's, that's a really important point. Yeah. Yeah. A cryptocurrency in the space is something that is has the function of a currency. And there are certain that only aspire to be a currency. And then there are digital assets that have uh, attributes that make them more of a security or a commodity because, as you referenced with Web3, they have true function in whatever their app might be. And therefore, it's more of a digital asset representing an ownership interest in a business uh, than it is a, a currency, uh, you know, for lack of a better term. And I need that for lack of a better term. Well, give uh, for our listeners, give give a few examples for that. So when you look at the space. Oh, man, I'm, on the, I'm on the spot now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'm scared to do it. I'm scared to do it because I don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, like like we I I. I I got uh, like an ENS name domain a little while ago, which in theory will provide like, you know, unified login type of, you know, there's a bunch of applications, but my understanding is that that is technically structured as an NFT is that that's actually the like technical way that that works. Even though people in people's minds, I think they're thinking about NFTs as like a, digital work of art or however they're they're kind of thinking about it. So NFTs as a digital work of art is the Trojan horse. And I believe that a lot of people in blockchain are thinking three chess moves ahead. Um, and I believe that the world is being exposed to NFTs in its easiest to consume structure, which is a digital work of art. Because you and I, you know, I look over your shoulder, you have a piece of art. There's no true chain of title to that work of art, right? So if I... It's on loan from my 11-year-old daughter, but... <laughs> there, you there you go. Well, the IRS wants to know what you're, uh, you know, <laughs> carrying that as. Um, but, you know, NFTs really are chain of title. And I explained years ago and, and got some friends in the industry uh, upset about explaining that title insurance will exactly. be in the past. Because yeah. an NFT is a clear chain of title. I won't have to buy insurance against the fact that the person I'm acquiring from rightly and freely owns it. So and, and you won't have to pay a fortune to, to do a title search. In New York, you pay 2% of the total transaction value in title insurance just to insure yourself against. So if you're doing a billion-dollar tower in New York, 2% fee goes to the title insurance placer and there's 0.0 risk. It's just a, it's just something that got included in some bill. Yeah. And it's just a law that that we have to do it, but we now have the, the, the technology to, to eliminate it, but we haven't created the the laws to do it. I think people get too caught up in, Oh, someone bought a monkey for $10 billion. That's fine. I don't know if it's worth $10 billion or not, but the, 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 the technology behind the NFT is, is, it, it, it isn't potentially, it is game-changing technology to, to lower the cost to uh, on a whole host of um, financial products that we have. But, and even more importantly, to create a, a ledger to show chain of title, whether you buy a, a painting, whether you buy a, 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 you know, an expensive bottle of wine or, or shoes, you know, or fancy sneakers. Well, I'm, I'm interested in your take on the sports side of this. You've got a background and in, in, um, are still very involved in sports management. To, to your earlier point in terms of 
what happens first is usually the most understandable, right? You saw a lot of athletes rush into NFTs. I, I'm I'm a Patriots fan. I watched and tried to buy as as Julian Edelman and Gronkowski and others sort of flooded to this space, and you're seeing it more and more. Um, explain to me kind of what's happening there and where you see that going. I mean, that's to some degree of work of art, but it seems like athletes are seeing a real value for themselves personally here, maybe breaking down some yeah. of the It's a new asset class, um, this whole digital collectibles thing, um, which, you know, certainly chain of command and authenticity is paramount when it comes to collectibles. Uh, blockchain solves that. Um, some of these athlete inspired things are interesting. The parallel that I thought was well drawn was when someone said, you know, there's a thousand Michael Jordan rookie cards uh, that were ever printed. That's a documented figure. Right. My ownership of one is a portion of a fixed supply that will never be, there'll be never be more of a lot of these athlete drops that you've seen in the NFT space um, are fixed supply, which, oh, by the way, is a common theme throughout all blockchain and digital assets, which is profound. And, and, and I'm happy to reference that as well. But if I'm issuing a digital collectible and I know that by owning it, I own one of a fixed amount of them, there's a clear chain of command. I can always prove its authenticity um, and exclusivity, if you will, then that, that is going to have value. Uh, I don't know that the market is mature enough for those that price activity to to be something to kind of uh, make it an investable asset, but there's a lot of speculation happening there. But, you know, as economists, um, you know, love to discuss, Bitcoin even is the same. You know, Bitcoin has 21 million uh, maximum. Uh, many think that millions of those are lost uh, and, and will never be, you know, uh, into circulation, if you will. But... If you're predicting future price activity in any asset, if I have to predict the future price of gold and I have to predict the, the numerator of supply and the denominator of demand or the inverse, now I have two variables that are affecting that future price activity. If I do not, if I can have a, if I can fix the denominator, if you will, and the only variable is the numerator, that becomes really sexy for economic design. Yeah. Uh, and so what you're seeing in Bitcoin and what you're seeing in all these fixed supply digital assets and you're seeing in NFTs that are very explicit with their um, uh, total volume. And you referenced the monkeys worth $10 million. I happen to own one of them, not, not worth $10 million, but I own one of these. And um, it has gold. It's a gold grill. It has glasses, right? It has, if you go on OpenSea and, and search under Bored Apes, what's even more fascinating than the community built around it is you can sort by its unique traits. And you can see that, yeah, there's 10,000 of them, but there's only 76 that have a gold grill. There's only 140 that have glasses. And there's only 14 that have both a gold grill, right? And so yeah, you start yeah, yeah, to see yeah. how people attribute value to the exclusivity and the uniqueness of these underlying assets. Just like there's only one corner store on 42nd and Park, and that has more value because of its limited supply and its high traffic than the one that's on 43rd and Madison. Um, these are the same principles that are just showing up in the digital space. The other thing that I think is super interesting about this is that it, on some level, this has always been true, but 
uh, crypto has made it almost explicitly more so is that things have value because people agree that they have value. And the the reality in the crypto space for some of this stuff is that is that people who have a platform who can promote some of this stuff or 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 create value through broad knowledge of something that's something that that they can take advantage of and monetize in a way that i don't think has been as explicit or um or real in the past like board apes is like there's a I don't will I don't know if you were tracking this but there were like uh some board ape owners who were disappointed that Snoop didn't wear like an ape sweatshirt for right. uh the Super Bowl halftime show, right? It's like that's a good example of where like the more something can have notoriety, the more valuable it becomes because people all see it. Like the um I was just reading uh that you, do you guys remember that Banksy piece of art with the, where he shredded it? Yeah. Uh, you know how much that sold for at auction? It was like a million dollars. Shredded or after? Ten million. Pre-shredded, it was yeah, like yeah. a million. And it just sold for like 25 million. Oh, wow. Well, there was and a it's, interesting one from Banksy that a friend of mine actually sold at Sotheby's for 10 million. And then a group, a blockchain group called Particle acquired for 10 million and then created 10,000 shares of it and did that as an NFT drop. So you could own a fractionalized fractionalized piece of the real work and the digital work. Yeah. The most fascinating one I saw in that space that I think was the most provocative, I should say, was Damien Hurst, who created 10,000 works called currency, physical works, and then created 10,000 digital works that matched. And you bought one and you got... And 12 months to the day that you bought it, he gives you the right to either destroy the digital or destroy the physical. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a really cool idea. And it's yeah. going to be at that point, people are going to have to make a decision, which is going to have more valuable. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have a whole bunch of art that I've collected over the years um, to my dismay because there is no liquid market for this art. Right. And I wish that I was displaying more of my daughter's artwork like you are than I am of some of the stuff I have hung in my house because it's the most illiquid asset class in the world. There's no bid. There's no efficient market. I could put it on eBay, but I can't guarantee that there's an educated group going to bid against it. And so it yeah. just torches and, and Southern Bees doesn't do those auctions for free. No. And they don't <laughs> want a, you know, a $50,000 piece of work they don't even get off the couch for. Yeah. And so it's just this no man's land. Whereas with NFTs, there's a true 24-7 deep and liquid market always to trade those things. And that's another dynamic that these digital assets create is they trade 24-7. They, they're deep markets. There's always a bid for it. And there's always really efficient pricing information about the asset because everything's public. So will, does your fund well, trade in NFTs or is it just? We don't at all. It's it's just something I, I track. We don't, we so the, the the advice I heard from NFTs is basically copied from art, which is basically like, oh, go for the things that you really like and will value yourself. Do you think that that's uh, accurate? Is that like a good way to think about NFTs? Because it, it feels to me like, it, as you describe, it's not a perfect analog, actually. So my, my wife and I are building a, a house and... Um, we are planning for multiple locations in the house to have art walls, if you will, with electric run to them. 
because I do believe that, you know, the television above everybody's mantelpiece will display art in the future. And instead of that being a black screen, that will be an NFT that people uniquely own. And it will be ways to validate the fact that that's not just a random reproduction of the Mona Lisa. That's the Mona Lisa. Um, And so do I believe that the future will have digital works of art? You have a black screen over your shoulder right now. That's not displaying anything. You know, I believe that those that hang on every wall in America, for lack of, you know, for lack of better math, will will showcase art in the future. And it will be clear to people if it's a screenshot of one or, you know, true ownership of it. Let me just ask the um, the, the counter argument to it. Um, Wall Street Journal last weekend had a big article on, on OpenSea, if you're familiar with it. But something crazy they disclosed, like 80 percent of their offerings are patent infringement or other issues. You know, there, there are still some big kind of mass adoption hurdles that, that a lot of these companies have to get over. Um, how do you see them doing that? Where do, where do you see this going in the next 12 months or so? Well, you should say I, part of the legal conversation I had before this included that as well. And the question I asked of, of this former SEC uh, attorney was, who does the onus fall on? Right. If I'm the issuer, is it my responsibility to qualify you as the buyer, KYCU, AMLU? Or if I sell it through OpenSea, or is it their responsibility as the platform to be the person that's both validating me as a seller and that the work that I'm putting forward is mine and not infringed upon, or validating you as the buyer and ensuring that you're not somebody laundering money or somebody you know, acquiring something uh, that shouldn't be you know, that doesn't meet qualified buyer standards and the like. That is yet to be defined. Uh, and I don't know that we're close to the definition of it. I do know that the, the conversation I had with her uh, was this is a lot, this is very similar to the ICO craze of 2016, 17, when everyone was just selling stuff with no securities regulation. And then fast forward, you know, hindsight 2020, a lot of projects got massive fines and whatever, because they didn't do the right thing. Um, And there's a little of that in the NFT space right now, where there's a little bit of a wild west. Over time, it'll be more clear uh, whose regulatory regime that falls under. Um, And it will be, you know, a little bit more clear how you can buy those things in in safe environments and, and whose responsibility it is to make it a safe environment. But we are not there yet. Great. Well, we're just about out of time. Let me let me bring it back to what you're working on at at Valkyrie and your your hedge fund. What are you, what are you excited about for the next few months? What what should we be keeping an eye on in this space? Yeah, we're, we we uh, we're excited about this uh, uh, v, a BTF that we have, which is you know the Bitcoin ETF. That's just a great thing. It, we don't make a lot of money doing it. It's just a good thing for the industry. We're excited about VBB, which is Bitcoin on balance sheet. Uh, we're excited about WGMI, which is a kind of crypto acronym. We're going to make it, um, but that's our Bitcoin miners uh, ETF. All of those are accessible in your Schwab account. You know, you can buy it right through whatever broker you you, you use with your personal money. Um, in the the hedge fund is just a you know really specialized thing. Uh, we're not going to manage a lot of money there, but like I said before, that the hedge funds in that space we can we can deliver venture like returns, but we're doing it with equity like liquidity. And that's what these digital assets allow for is I don't need, you know, in venture capital or private equity investing that I do in my private life, 
I'm making a bet that the investment I make is going to be the winner of five to seven years from now. Whereas with digital assets, I only have to be right for five to seven days. And the fully liquid nature of that market makes it very exciting to be trading in and out of assets and utilizing data. The other dynamic that's important is all of these blockchains are public ledgers. And so we've built algorithms and deciphering tools to pull down data and have real-time data on user growth, revenue growth, total value locked into the different blockchains and made ratios against pricing activity that shows us where there's, there's uh, you know, dislocations and opportunities. Uh, it fascinates me that, you know, we continue to trade U.S. equities 361 days a year on speculation and four days a year for one hour. They tell us in the morning what's going on in their business for that. Four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yet in blockchain, we have this fully public data set and, it, you know, not all of these things need to be centralized. And I think what decentralization is educating folks on is that there's more effective and efficient ways to move in and out of liquid markets. And that, um, you know, we don't necessarily need to pay a hundred basis point spread to Goldman Sachs for every trade that we enter into, because a lot of that mechanism can now be run by computers and it's a trustless environment um, that is actually a safer place to play. I think it's a really good point. And, you know, I don't, necessarily have a strong opinion about what the intrinsic value of all these things are. But I know when two very large regulatory bodies are battling over who should regulate these things, that this is probably an asset or a currency that is, that is here to, to stay. You know. Yeah. So what I tell people is Bitcoin deserves a place in every portfolio. I think it's becoming irresponsible for institutions not to have one to five percent of their treasuries in Bitcoin. It's a it's a store of value. It's it's deserves a seat right alongside gold and is probably a a, a better risk return profile than than many assets that are uh, you know keeping people comfortable. Uh, I do think it's wise to get exposure to these layer one blockchains, which you know like Ethereum. I explained as like the operating system on your iPhone on which applications are built and the future of blockchain will be built on Ethereum or Solana or one of their competitors. And so having exposure to that more broadly, um, you know, is, is important. Uh, and then, you know, if you want to get into NFTs and you want to trade DeFi tokens, you better do it with people that uh, are living and breathing it because it's a 24 seven market. And just like anything else, unless you're living and breathing it, you're, you're probably not going to end up winning. Yeah. I also think just the fact that someone like you is getting involved in it. I, I know a lot of the, the early founders of this, you know, they're, they're not even libertarians. They're, they're even farther out there and they're not somebody you could put in front of investors. So I, this is definitely becoming, you know, mainstream. Um, and the fact that, you know, you're involved in, it, I think is a good sign for the, the, the future of the, the, the industry. Yeah. I'm constantly impressed with the quality of talent that is committing uh, to blockchain. And I have yet to meet anybody involved in blockchain who wants to be less involved tomorrow than they were today. Right. Yeah. That's so we'll give you one last chance to, to give the address of your new home so we can all visit and see your new uh, digital. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're going to keep that decentral. <laughs> yeah, That's not going on the ledger. <laughs> Perfect. Well, well, thank you for coming on. This is a great conversation. I learned a lot uh, and we really appreciate it. So uh, thank you. Happy to see you guys. Thank you so much for, for having me. You too. And uh, for all our listeners, we'll, we'll leave some information on, on Will and uh, Valkyrie in our show notes. Um, I want to thank Matt and Brendan for, for teaming up with me on this episode. 
we'll have a few more of these crypto conversations coming at you uh, over the next couple weeks. And as always, you can find out more about Hamilton Place Strategies in our podcast on our website, hamiltonplacestrategies.com, or follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights. Thank you all for joining. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com. Thank you.